Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Hey, Tati, I know I have been a mom longer than you, but there is a question that has been asked me over and over forever, and it's how do we do it all as moms? We're recording this, you know, after the holiday season, and I remember when I was a young mom like you, at least young about that same age but it was really it was when right around when I was like pregnant with my youngest and so I had four other kids and my my parents have lived close to me for years and actually for decades at this point and all of my siblings and I'm the oldest of six it seems like all of my siblings and all of their kids would come to us every single year for the holidays okay every year okay so I remember this one year I was pregnant you know, I hadn't even told everybody yet. So I was in the yucky stage of pregnancy where I was not feeling well anyway, hormones are raging and I was trying to keep this secret. And meanwhile, I have like 20 people to feed every single meal and nobody knows I'm pregnant. You know, and in fact, my other two sisters were pregnant as well. And one of my sister-in-laws. So, I mean, all of these pregnant people, but I'm the one that has to feed everybody. Okay. There was a point, and this, this happened multiple times at this time of year. It wasn't just when I was pregnant, but this one was the worst one. I snuck into my room and curled up into a fetal position and just sobbed and, you know, like into a pillow, the whole thing, because I didn't want anybody to hear because I didn't want anyone to not feel welcome because you know, I knew that they were coming to spend this time with my parents. My mom was not able to do the cooking and everything. So this had to be done. I didn't see any other way out of it. I had to do it, but it was a real hard point in my life. And I know that as moms, we try and do it all. And then we have these like mental breakdowns and yeah, it's, it's hard. Have you ever experienced stuff like that? Oh yeah. I I think that just that just comes with the territory of being a mom. <laughs> like you're just like, whoa, what did I do? I took on way too much or just it's the my plate is way too full and and or life just throws you a curveball and and you're just feeling like, oh my gosh, I just can't do this. I can't handle everything I'm doing and and feeling like you're feeling into everything. But I think actually it, to me, I think it's a little bit worse than might have been 80 or 100 years ago and and not because women weren't doing like everything then as well because I definitely think women have always always kind of played this role in society of of the nurturer and the caregiver and and that's so much burden on them but I think it's I think it's worse than it maybe it was 100 years ago and there's a really good book called The Seventh Sense by Joshua Cooper Ramo I think is his name and it's about the world that we live in now and how things have shifted and changed and and how to kind of be successful in today's world by understanding what I guess he calls the seventh sense. 
But the book starts out by talking about how he's a Chinese correspondent, I'm pretty sure, or Japanese. Actually, I think it's Chinese. Anyways, I know it's the East that he's done most of his work in, in Asian studies and things. And so he was in China and everyone kept telling him, like, you need to meet this really cool, amazing, super wise man. And uh, I think his name was Juan. He made this journey to find this man, to have a conversation with him and saying, how can I better like understand the world we live in now and prepare myself and those that I communicate with to understand the world that we live in? And I guess he was kind of like an elder that everyone revered as like super knowledgeable and, and uh, a master of, of the world and understanding it. He said, in the 19th century, the plague that faced humanity was tuberculosis because we put everybody into big cities. We took them out of the countryside and put them into big cities and where our air quality was so poor and their housing was so poor and the sanitation was so poor that we cause epidemics of tuberculosis. And you can see that. I mean, just, just look at like the number one cause of death throughout the 1800s was tuberculosis, right? It still is a pretty big issue in, in developing countries as well. And so then he said, but the plague of the 20th century was cancer. And you can definitely see that the cancer was has been a very huge thing for so many of the developing countries and, and the developed countries having to deal with cancer. And he said that the plague of the 21st century is insanity. And when I read that, I was like, what? This is the plague of the 21st century is insanity? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm looking back at like so much of my life and I'm like, I, you're right. Like, I don't know a single person. Okay, maybe I know like one or two people that don't deal with like chronic anxiety or depression or other mental health issues uh adhd on the spectrum you know bipolar borderline narcissist i mean i know very few people who aren't struggling mentally <laughs> and i think it's it really is it is the epidemic of the of the 21st century so on top of life as a mother being really really hard i think it also we're dealing with something that is maybe never really faced a generation of mothers before and so i think uh we're we're like we got two things coming at us at once <laughs> yeah and and as moms we're not only dealing with our own mental health but also with our kids because i remember that the last year that i was a teacher for a charter school uh, where i was working with homeschool families it was during the um, pandemic. And um, so we had that additional thing, but I had half of my high school students that were on my roster. They had some kind of mental health struggle during that year. I had three that were put into institutions at one point. One of them went full time. She actually had to be taken out of our school and put into a special ed school because it was that bad. I mean, there were serious issues that we're dealing with. So, you know, we're dealing with it. We're dealing it with our kids having issues. And, and then we, on top of that, I mean, all of us, we're talking to homeschool families. I mean, 
we homeschool. So we've added that craziness on top of that. Maybe that is the insanity, the true insanity that we're doing that as well, because you're truly in marker for insanity. If you choose to homeschool, I should tell everyone it's like, Oh, I'm thinking about homeschooling. Are you insane? (laughs) (laughs) Because if you're not insane, then don't do it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But yeah, here I've been doing it. I must be really the head of the crazy people because I am doing this and promoting it. I've been doing it for 22 years and and more. And I still think it's the best way, even though the, the families cause us grief and our kids have these issues. It's like, we're able to handle it ourselves. There's so many reasons to do it. What have you found that helps? I think focusing on priorities as a homeschooling parent is very important. And knowing your limitations and also your strengths and weaknesses is very important. So I, I, I had an experience that really messed up my brain when in my young 20s. And since then, I've always struggled with seasonal depression. And so I know that I'm going to always struggle in January and February. That it's going to be harder for me to be my high-functioning normal self. Um, and so, because I've, I know that about myself, I don't give my body or my brain reasons for me to feel this way. I just let it be. And I think that's been one of the biggest things is like, okay, I need to understand that these months of the year are harder for me. So I'm going to give myself grace for those things, get myself tools that I need to get through them and be very understanding of when I need to say no, cause I can't. And just say no. So like knowing yourself, I think is very, very important. And then knowing the second one is focusing on your priorities. So I still do school every day that I can with my children, but it usually doesn't start till nine or nine 30 and sometimes 10, because I super struggle in the mornings in the wintertime. I really, I don't know why I, I struggle getting out of bed. I have really bad anxiety in the mornings. So um, some days I can get up and get going like, well, some days I can't. And on the days that I can't, I used to just beat the crap out of myself being like, you're such a bad mom. You're doing all these things wrong. And then as I observed the pattern, it was like, actually, I really only suck at this in the wintertime. I'm really good (laughs) all the other times of the year. So there must be something going on with my body. And so once I realized that, and I'm like, I'm just going to be okay with the fact that, oh, I feel like it's really hard for me to get out of bed this morning and be okay with the fact that. I'm, I'm not getting school started and then adjust my schedule to allow for the fact that, yeah, we're going to be doing school later into the afternoon and maybe it's not ideal, but one of the things that, you know, we have a pretty limited home when it comes to technology, we don't let our kids have a lot of TV shows or, or iPad time, but I just, I just don't even care for the month of February. <laughs> um, and I know that it's a season and it, then the summertime, we can go weeks without touching or watching a show, right? And and I'm going to be okay with knowing that's where I'm at right now. Otherwise, if I'm too harsh on myself, then I drop everything, right? And then my bad time turns into months and months instead of just like, you're really going to struggle this eight weeks. So I think those are two things that really, really help me. And then focusing on the priorities, right? So for me and my homeschooling, we're we do homeschool all year round it looks different during the summer when we're like doing vacations or doing things like that but we're always learning we're always doing school like we don't necessarily get to take breaks (laughs) and not learn so for me I know in February 
maybe it's a lot more of me doing direct reading to the kids while they're playing with Legos or we change up my expectations for them, you know, and I really focus on meeting those needs of, of the kids that I have, because I, one, one of the most powerful truths that I learned a couple of years ago is this idea of something called attachment theory. Um, and so what they've discovered about mammals, specifically all, all mammals, they're, their live births, right? There's a young phase of a mammal's life where it's absolutely essential for them to be with their primary caregiver or their community. And what they've noticed is that mammals have neuron receptors and that's how they receive dopamine or serotonin or different things as your neuron receptors. And the amount of receptors that you have in your brain is greatly determined by how well you attach to your primary caregiver in between the ages of zero and eight. And there's three different types of attachment styles. There's ambivalent, which is kind of like you pull back and you're kind of aloof. You're like an aloof attachment. There's secure attachment, which is a healthy attachment where you can be your own independent person at the same time you can be connected in relationships with people. And then there's insecure attachments where you're always worried that you're never safe and that you're not going to be okay. And so what I realized is that when I get in these dark places, because it's that time of year for me, I need to make sure that my weaker, my normal attachment style is very secure. But when I'm not doing well, I do tend to be it, like ambivalent and just withdraw and aloof and d disconnected and not there. And I realized that because my role as a mother is to be to be there for my children and help them make those connections to help them be successful. Then I changed my expectations during those months of, you know, I'm focusing on a lot more of, you know, snuggle time with little kids, reading a lot, like adjusting, you know, what we do in school to, to just being what those kids need right then. And then I know I can hit it really hard in April and May and September and October when we really do the more rigorous work with the kids. So I think those two things have really helped me is, is having a, an understanding of my strengths and weaknesses and not like hating myself for my weaknesses and then understanding my limitations and then really putting my priorities in line. Like what really is my priority? You know, when I'm not doing well, what's my highest priority? It's like, you know what? The dishes aren't done right now, but my son felt like when he needed something, I was emotionally present and available to him. I, I totally get that, especially the dishes thing. So many people, when they first start homeschooling, they expect their home to stay beautiful. It's like, okay, we're going to do this nice, you know, we're going to spend all this nice time together and then we're going to clean up. And it's like, okay, you got to change expectations in that realm. Otherwise you are literally going to drive yourself crazy because your house is lived in 24 seven. It's not like you're sending your kids off to school for you know until three in the afternoon or four in the afternoon when you can clean up everything but yeah you have to do that and and also that season I totally get that because what I figured out was that even though the holidays were really hard for me and there were a lot of expectations put on me when I wasn't in that horrible anxiety you know just sobbing in my room state I could understand that first of all when my sister's kids got older they wouldn't be visiting all the time 
you know, and also I wasn't doing this for them. I was really doing it for my parents and my parents were getting older and I knew that they weren't going to be around forever. And so there was a why behind it. I was doing it for my parents. I was doing it for family and I knew that it wasn't going to go on forever. And so I could handle it for at least, a, you know, as long as I needed it to. And it, it, it didn't, it didn't go on forever. And when my sister and her family stopped coming down for two weeks, every single Christmas holiday, where I had to feed them every, <laughs> every meal, you know, and my kids started going off to college and everything, there were some holidays, some Christmases where we didn't have Christmas on December 25th. We didn't celebrate it that day because we couldn't have all of, you know, our kids together on that day. And so that would just be a normal day. My parents would go off and, and spend it with someone who was doing Christmas on that day. And they would come home and do Christmas with us when we had everybody home. And oh my gosh, that felt so good. It felt so good. But I was able to get through those hard times because I was able to see the patterns, see the seasons and just kind of wait them out. You know, like you do, you're like, yeah, you snuggle in and, and that's, that's awesome. I know one thing that has really helped me out with that as well, making those connections with kids is just, you know, the attachment theory is great and all of that, but also just understanding different personality types. I mean, just something as simple as love languages. I do not naturally hug, but after having five boys, boys are naturally just more physical anyway, but my oldest son, he needs hugs. He just needs that physical touch. And so even now when he comes to visit, I go out of my way to make sure he gets a hug because he needs them more than all of my other boys. And I, I take that and that improves our relationship, it improves our communication, and it helps us get, you know, through harder times and just knowing that and knowing my husband's as well has really helped. What kind of advice would you give to a mentor who is struggling? I mean, <clears throat> I think one of the things that's good to know, like from this conversation is that it's not going to be forever whatever you're going through isn't going to be forever. It's definitely a seasonal thing. It might feel like it's going to be forever, but maybe I'm wrong. Obviously like disabilities can be there forever, but you know, I feel like trials come and go, you know, they're not permanent things. So understanding that perspective really helps, but, but how do we help the mentor who may be going through, you know, a personal crisis at the same time that they're trying to be a Lemmy mentor or maybe not a personal crisis, but a personal winter at the same time they're trying to be a Lemmy mentor. Yeah. Burnout is real. And one of the things just to mention, just so everybody understands and can understand when a winter happens for most homeschoolers, it's really, it's most educators February, it's not just you, Tati. <laughs> that hit, it's probably hits you double in February, especially end of February, beginning of March. It really hits homeschoolers hard. I've noticed that that is when everybody wants to quit. And that's when you have to kind of find that outside ins inspiration. 
because of, of the issues that you've had in your, in your life, you have created that for yourself. And that is amazing. You've seen those patterns, but a lot of new homeschoolers and new mentors, they, they get to that point. It's like, ah, what's going on? I'm going to give up because it's so hard. So first of all, I think really understanding that pattern is the first thing. And, and then finding someone to mentor you when you're a mentor, you think, well, I'm it, you know, I'm the parent and you don't realize, especially in LEMI, Leadership Education Mentoring Institute, there are so many avenues for support and for people to mentor you, people who I mean, really a mentor is someone who has been on that road, who helps you figure out where you need to go and helps you get there. And this is one way through our podcast, but we also offer things like webinars and trainings, and we even have a free online course that you can take to give you some inspiration and understanding of, of how to do things differently, how to look at things differently and all of that. So I think that that all helps, but I I think like expectations are are something big. Oh yeah, yeah. We I think it's like anytime you start an endeavor, there's high energy, high vision, and you're ready to go, right? And then as you get there, you lose the vision and you lose the energy, and you're just stuck in that pit, being like, "Why are we doing this?" You know, you, you think about like when Moses. And the children of Israel left Egypt. I'm sure they were like parties and we're doing this, but I'm sure by like year five or like we're kind of in the wilderness and this isn't really what we expected. You know, we all have that moment where in the wilderness and you just have to keep going. And so learning how to inspire yourself, I think by, you know, doing those webinars, doing those things is really crucial, important and finding a mentor is really key part of that. But I think expectations is the root of all sorrow, right? <laughs> and and you don't always realize what your expectations are. So I recently had a conversation with my mom. She's such a gift, so wise. And I was just like, I am not doing this. And she, I'm just like, what are, you, what are you not doing? I'm like, I have so many things on my plate. And I listed her the huge things I had on my plate. And I'm barely getting them done. And I feel like I'm doing such a crappy job at all of them. Like a crappy job. Like keep my house clean doing my church responsibilities, taking care of the commons responsibilities, mentoring the classes I'm running and being a spouse and my marriage and my children relationships, let alone myself, my health and all those things, you know, list all those things off. And she just kind of laughed and was like, that's what it looks like to be doing it. I'm like, what do you mean that's what? She said, that's what it feels like it looks like to be really doing it. That's what it feels like to be crushing life. So like, so I'm crushing life when I feel like I'm drowning and doing such a crappy job at everything. She's like, yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Because think of it from the perspective of your children and your husband. They see you showing up every day for them. They see you being there when, you know, when they need you. They don't see the struggle you have. Look at the people in your community or the people in your church. They see you showing up and they see you're there. And that's what it looks like to be crushing it. Yeah, you're not full of the energy of like pursuing and creating the best possible simulation every week. And, and you're not, you know, running this the best possible way you think you could, but, but these things are happening and they continue to happen. The things that need to happen and you're meeting an expectation that they have of you just being there. That's what it looks like to be crushing it. 
And I'm like, I don't really know if I want to be crushing it then. Cause I just like feel like <laughs> all the time that I'm always coming up short. And she's like, well, I think you just need to let go of that. Let go of that expectation that this is what it has to look like for me to be successful. And as soon as you can let go of that, then you'll be able to see how successful you are. And it was like really a powerful conversation for me to have because the fact of the matter is like, yes, I'm being asked to fulfill a lot of roles and, you know, and I still have young children, right? So like, those are so heavy. I mean, anyone with young children know it's like, you don't just get to say, give me five minutes while I do this. Like, it's like, I need you now, or I'm going to die. Even if that now is just like, get me a drink of water. Even if you teach them to be patient and wait for them, they're still going to be pretty demanding, right? So I think that expectation thing is is huge. And and then having someone in your life who is part of your life, who can look at you and, and be that source. And unfortunately, I think a lot of women don't have mothers who can <laughs> do that for them. I think it's really a gift uh, to have a mother. So if you don't have a mother like that, then definitely become the mother like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's really why you want to be part of a community. Because you and I have mothers like that. But my mother is also part of our community. And she's like the mother that everybody goes to. It's like, okay, Nana Cherry, you know, where's Nana Cherry? I need to talk to her about something. And yeah, we actually had my mom left for a couple of years to go do school and out of state. And there was a lady in our neighborhood who adopted us as, as my mom. And it was probably one of the best. We still call it, we call her church grandma. And she would stop by. I was pregnant with my third and I was super, super sick. And so my mom called this neighbor friend and said, hey, would you just check in on it? She showed up with food and she held the kids and was so helpful and loving. And then for like the year and a half that my mom wasn't around, she was there for us. It was just amazing. But if you're not actively participating in some type of community, you're not going to be able to find that community. And and in some ways, those community moms are are just a different way of, of loving and supporting you. That's like a breath of fresh air, right? Because they don't have all the drama of you as a kid. <laughs> so they can just love you where you're at now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I say this all the time, but especially when your kids are little, that community is for you. It is for you. When your kids get older, when they get into you know, what we call scholar age, which is, you know, basically 12 and up, they really need it as well, but you still need it. <laughs> you still need it. And it's, that's when they can basically hold up that mirror and say, you know, look, this is what we are seeing. They can say, you are meeting expectations. You are doing okay. And when you aren't doing okay, then they can help you get to the point where you are. I know th there have been times, I mean, even, even recently, as recent as last year, where I was, I was trying to do everything I was, but I was asked to mentor Key of Liberty in a brand new community. I didn't know anyone. They didn't know me, even though I had trained some of them, <laughs> but they didn't know me. And we're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comment section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using, because that really helps others find our content. 
my sister-in-law had a major health crisis right at the beginning. And it, I was the only one that didn't have little kids. I needed to go. I was also, I'm the closest to their kids. So I had to last minute fly out there. I had no clue how long I was going to be. And, you know, I even told the leadership, you know, you might have to find somebody else to do this because I might be there for months. I just don't know. It didn't work out that way. I was able to be there by the first day, but I had not made any connections with these kids. And my co-mentor had some issues with her family that she was dealing with. And so it ended up, she had to leave. I mean, she had to take care of some issues and so she couldn't co-mentor with me. So then I had another person come in and I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, here I am, this experienced mentor. I mean, I am a key of liberty trainer for goodness sake. and here I am having a problem mentoring key. I was just feeling horrible because I had all of these things going on and I had no connection and the people didn't know me and they had a bunch of new people. And so I would put out, you know, Hey, I want to talk to all the parents. And I had a big class and I had one person show up and I'm like, ah, what do I do? And meanwhile, I'm taking on all of these other things and I, didn't have the time to call everybody. And, you know, it, it was horrible. It was really horrible for a while. And then I had to really think about, okay, I have to change my expectations. It wasn't really lowering them. It was like, okay, I am doing everything that I can. I am doing the best that I can. And I am enough. And it's something that I've had to go back to over and over again. One year in training, it was quest three. I'll never forget it. I was in quest three. We, one of my closest friends, she and I were doing it together. And we say, you know, it's not let me training until someone cries. And anyway, my friend started crying and, and Kathy Malore was the trainer. She was amazing. And she just sat there and she just breathed life into my friend because my friend didn't feel like she was enough. And she just kept telling her, you are enough. You are enough. And I ended up for a gift for my friend. I forget if it was her birthday or Christmas, but I got her a, a necklace with a little pendant that says, I am enough. And I eventually got one for myself as well, because it was so impactful. That entire experience was so impactful for me. Anyway. Well, I think that's something that's just a weakness for women. I think what we just really struggle with that idea of are we enough I mean just is it that lack I mean men too definitely men too but I definitely think that's resonates true with so many women and so true on so many levels so the other thing while you were talking I realized is that the ideal is in the priority right so while you're talking about like this wasn't the ideal in no way whatsoever did this class start out as the ideal. There wasn't the beginning of the semester meeting with a really cool simulation where all the kids bonded and you had this awesome experience. And it was like, oh my gosh, this feels like a train wreck and it just keeps wrecking. Like, and so it's like, and what, I think there's this idea of like, if we can't have the ideal, then let's just not do it, right? But I, but I think when you can step back and like, okay, listen, this is what I have, this is my resources. What is the ideal? And the ideal for me, especially with Key of Liberty, 
is that the student knows that freedom is only attainable when true principles are learned. And I'm pretty sure that your kids probably walked away knowing to some extent that's those, those truths. And the other idea for me is like, as a mentor, I want those kids to know that no matter what they do or what they say, or that I love them. You know, I really do love them. And I, I would say, I would say that I've had some horrible failures of a class, but I would say probably 90% of the time, those kids walk away knowing that I love them. I really hope they do. And so I think if you change expectations from like all these things, I have to have the perfect lecture. I have to have the best discussion. I have to have all these things done. I have to read all these books. It's like, if all else fails and you don't have time, like I then watch a YouTube video on the subject and maybe even share the same YouTube video to the kids. Like that's totally, I mean, it's not necessarily something you want to do every week, but, but on those weeks when things are going, like I totally have done that. And it's been great. We've had great weeks. Maybe the kids need a break too and change expectations and, and understandings. And then be okay because, you know, some weeks are going to rock it, knock it out of the park and do all those but you don't have to do that every week and it's going to be totally okay if you don't also think that one of the things that you have is because that foundation of i'm enough your self-talk didn't like put you into these really bad places i think sometimes our self-talk can really put us in a bigger hole than we really are so that's one of the things that i've realized is like just because i'm feeling bad doesn't mean i have to give it a reason you know, the other day, uh, like literally just a couple of days ago, I I was on the verge of like a panic attack all day. And I and my brain kept trying to be like giving myself a reason for it. Like, oh my gosh, you're failing at this. And this is, you did such a terrible job here. And, da, da, da. and every time I could be like, actually, I don't need a reason for feeling like high anxiety, lots of nerves. I'm just not going to give myself a reason. And so then, yeah, it was a rough day. I didn't feel good. But then the next day I was totally fine. I didn't like keep going with that hole or just like create those patterns. So I, th I think that's a another big part is like, just because things aren't going well, doesn't mean that I need to now find the blame. For, like there's no one to blame in that situation. There's no blame to be there. It just is. And accepting what is and then being okay with that, it, it really does so much for your mental health in, in helping you stay, stay sane. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is, that is so true. One of the things that I really love about what Lemmy has taught me is that part of what we're teaching to the kids is that we have control over what we think. We can change that. There's several different projects where we, we do that. I mean, I know, I forget which project I actually read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, but that was like, oh yeah, you know, that was such a powerful one for me. And it was something that encouraged me to share with all of my classes ever since then. As you know, I always tell them about that because that is, that is the ultimate freedom is being able to change your self-talk, change what you accept for yourself. And then, you know, and then when you get to quest three, when you're actually writing your personal manifesto, it's like, yeah, what do I believe? What do I understand about life right now? And it 
that becomes part of that and you're choosing what you want to believe. And it's, it really helps the kids just being aware of that self-talk. It, it teaches them not only how to control their thoughts, but also to understand how to think. You know, our goal is to help them understand how to think, not what to think. Understanding their self-talk is like one of the first steps. And as moms, if we can get that, if we can get that under control, if we can see the patterns in our life and and work through those, if we can see the seasons in our life and in all life and in really, you know, cycles of history, we go back to that, you know, all of that, if we can understand that and address those and have those expectations it, it'll just make all of our lives better. So. I totally, I totally agree with that. I think because going back to like, we live in the age of insanity being such a huge problem. One of the things that my husband and I have done to try to equip our children, because we know full well, like nothing we do is going to save them from life. And that's not the goal right? That the goal is not to save them from pain because that's just not healthy. The goal is to equip them with the knowledge and the strength and the, the fortitude and the grit to take life's challenges and be able to get through them better at the end, right? So the other day, it was like, so we've taught our kids about, you know, unhealthy ways of thinking. And there's uh, really awesome resources. There's tons of them online. But we had this like little rubric and we went through all these different ways of unhealthy thinking. <clears throat> and one of the ones is called awfulizing. So it's like something bad happens and then you just like think of the worst possible scenario. Right. So I have a particular child that that's a weakness of theirs. And then they awfulize so much that they work themselves into a panic. And the other day, this child came to me and said, this happened. And guess what? I caught myself awfulizing. And dad told me a while ago that if, if I'm getting in, in this stuck loop, I can breathe my way out. And so I breathed my way out of my awful lazy. Isn't that awesome? I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. I'm, and, and, and then the thing is, is like, we taught them these principles and then they knew them and she can implement them on her own. It's a huge, huge win for us. <laughs> that is amazing. And really, when you think about it, I mean, another thing I love about the whole Lemmy philosophy and leadership education is what is more important? What are they going to use more? That lesson or diagramming a sentence? I mean, really, that is the most important. That is a skill that you have taught. And that is going to be something that they can use for the rest of their life and will probably teach it to their children as well and make the world a better place because of that. And so many times I feel like our mentors, when they get into those horrible times in the classroom, and there are horrible days, there are times when everything that you plan, you know, you have this great lecture, you're, you think it's going to be so inspiring. And then you have this, this simulation where it's like, oh, it's going to be so much fun. And everything falls flat. And you're going to have those times, but yeah, 
you have a responsibility and then the kids have responsibilities and all you can do is your best. And you have to understand that, you know, maybe what the kids need to learn that week is how you respond when you fail, you know, and that failing is okay. And you have to be able to pick yourself up. Yeah, I definitely, I think that's very, very important to understand, like, what is my role as a mentor? What is the student's role? And I think we can often put ourselves up for great pain if we assume that our role is to distill all knowledge into the child's brain. And that's just not reality. It never was. It never will be. And no matter how much we want it to be. So I think we need to make sure that we are like remembering that our role is that we are here to to offer this amazing truth and knowledge to our students and inspire them to choose to get it themselves. And so I think that changes if if that's expectation and that's the understanding, I think it changes just greatly the stress and the pressure, right? Because you got to be okay with the fact that they choose not to do it. You know, if they choose not to do it. That's their choice. And, and so many people think, oh, if I don't have all 27 of my students get the award at the end, then I'm failing them. And it's like, if you have all 27 students get it the award at the end, then there's probably either you've completely changed the project. So it's like a piece of the cake, or there's a lot of coercion going on because that's just not normal. You know, there I do know of some people who are so inspiring and so awesome that all the kids end up doing the work. But for the most part, I mean, it's just not reality, right? It's very difficult. It's difficult for a reason. And and if the kids don't choose to do it, they won't have the grit to push through it. So, you know, I think changing expectation as a mentor is and your role is a huge part of, of like getting through that those hard days. Yeah, because one of the principles, you know, like you talked about, you can not make someone learn. You can just inspire them too. And I remember, I remember one year, actually back to Key of Liberty, I was uh, mentoring Key of Liberty and I had this autistic child in my class. He was higher end on the spectrum, but I would still label him as autistic rather than even Asperger's. He had limited, limited verbal. I mean, most of the time when I would ask him any question, he would not be able to look at me and he would only be able to say one syllable words to me. And I wanted to do my best to inspire him. And so what I did is with my co-mentor, we were like trying to figure out what can we do? Because we could definitely see that he wanted to be there. We could see him, even though he knew enough to kind of self-regulate himself when he needed to kind of de-escalate or something, he would just pace in the back of our class. And his uh, grandmother, who was also, who was bringing him two classes and everything she told us that that was something that he did and so we we understood that we accepted that as something that he needed to do but one week we were watching him he was also taking Shakespeare and we saw that one of the things that he could do really well is he could play a role you could tell him okay you know Johnny we want you to be a pirate. All of a sudden, 
he could look you in the eye. He could talk to you in that role. You didn't even have to give him lines. He not only said what a pirate would say, but he said it with a pirate accent. He would walk with a pirate swagger. And so we were able to, you know, we took that information and took it back to our class. And we totally changed our entire class around this one boy because we could understand what he needed to be inspired. And we did lots of role-playing type simulations. And I feel like he needed to know that year that we loved him and he was, he had a genius. He was a genius and we wanted him to be able to share it. The rest of the kids, they love the simulations, but the main thing I think they got out of it is that they were able to see his genius and they were able to see that everyone, no matter how they present in everyday situations, if you look a little bit deeper, you could see that. But our job as the mentor was to try and figure out, you know, just use our spiritual eyes, see what the reality was, but understand what our role was, understand what his role was, and put him in a situation that was best for him, but that was also beneficial for the other kids. And I love that. I have that experience. It was a challenging year, but it was also a lot of fun and obviously very inspirational for me. But it really taught me a lot about what my role was, my responsibility as a mentor is, and then also the role of a mentee. Because he could have just, you know, oh, I'm not doing any of this. He had an he had an excuse. I mean, he had this this learning challenge this mental health challenge i don't know how you would how you classify that but he didn't accept that excuse and he was willing to grow in that situation and i was just so grateful i was grateful i was there to witness it but have you had experiences with that mentor mentee responsibility yeah that's a beautiful story i think it really does illustrate the principle of spiritual eyes which we probably should do a whole podcast on but also, you know, that expectation, you know, and then really adjusting that with what, with what you have is really awesome. Yeah. I think for me, what I've realized is that when you create the right environment, that your role as a mentor, when you create the right environment is not to make sure they know everything. So the other day we were teaching in Shakespeare about mind's eye and you do the warm ups and the activities, and then you debrief them you know, you have a discussion. So we're talking about like, why is it an important skill for you to be able to picture things in your mind and detail and see every image? And the kids threw out a bunch of ideas and it was, they're really good, well thought. They're very, yeah, I was very impressed. It's kind of fun. This is a second year Shakespeare class. And it's fun to teach. It's like, wow, you guys are so smart. <laughs> so it was, it was a really good discussion. But at the end of the discussion, I just threw in a, a couple examples and I threw in the example of Nikola Tesla and how he literally built every one of his inventions in his head before he put it on paper to the point he was so good at this that it was like there was no nothing wrong like it was perfect and then the other person i mentioned was alexander solzhenitsyn who when he was in solitary confinement in the 
Gulag Archipelago, to keep himself sane, he played chess with himself in his head. And the kid's like, what? That's crazy. That's amazing. And like, like, yeah, but he developed his mind's eyes so well that he could remember where every piece was and move it and, and stuff like that. And so I just said that, you know, to illustrate a point, but on the way way home when I was talking to my niece she's working on her hero project right at the same time and she's like who's this like Alexander Schultz and Nietzsche and I was like oh yeah and so I told her a little about it she's like I'm looking for people in my hero report that I want to like highlight who who really made a difference by being brave to defend the the vulnerable and to do those kind of things I was like oh interesting and I was like well you could definitely read some of Alexander Schultz and Nietzsche's stuff it's really intense and deep and I'm like but you should really look into Florence Nightingale. I feel like she really was fighting those victims, you know. <clears throat> she had told me a story about how she really won one of the people in her hero report about a, a Civil War soldier who, in the Battle of Fredericksburg, went in the battlefield to, to minister to the sick and wounded at the risk of his own life. And she really wanted to highlight that. And she said that they wouldn't let him carry a, a white flag, so he was being shot out because they didn't have the red cross within and she's like i've heard of the red cross what is the red cross so anyways i just like told her a little briefly about it i'm like yeah look it up and then just the other day i get a text from her saying hey can you tell me about henry i don't remember his name who helped florence and girl start the word cross and i was like i don't know anything about him like, I don't so so from that one thing i said then she takes the responsibility to start doing research and to start learning and to start going deeper into to where she wants to go with her education and who knows where she's going to end up going with her project or even her career path in life. But it, if you see your role as a mentor, it's like, I, it's not my responsibility to delineate to her all the things that she needs to, to be pursuing, especially as they get older. It's my role to, to inspire her with the knowledge that I've gained and where I'm at and what I've learned. And, and so I think that's important as we, as we get overwhelmed is that, really going back to what you said earlier, like you are enough. And right near the end of time, so I'll tell this, this last story. So I, I grew up, I, I, honestly, I totally think I had the, the ideal childhood, <laughs> probably the ideal education. I'm extremely grateful for it every day. I'm just think, so grateful for my parents and what they did for me. But with that also, like they came with this culture of like, oh, you have a mission in life and you'd be doing your mission in life and you know like find that mission do that thing which i think especially when you're younger can be construed to like i have to do this grand amazing thing right and i remember one day i was pregnant with my when i'm pregnant i'm like i just throw up for the whole time and it's, it's absolute misery and i was pregnant and i remember telling my mom's like i'm not doing anything great i'm like a failure to my life totally and she's like no you are in the trenches you are in the trenches and mud is all over your face and you're knee deep in, in who knows what kind of fluids and you are in the freaking trenches. So yeah, nobody's going to know your name and nobody's going to know anything you're doing because you're in the trenches and that's what you're doing. And, and you know what? Those trenches matter because if you don't hold that trench line, nothing happens. Nothing gets done. And you're a young mother who's stuck in the trenches and it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And she's like, and to have the expectation that you're supposed to be the general or the leader or doing all these things when you're freaking in the trenches, that's not an expectation that's at all healthy for you. So just be okay with the fact that you're knee deep in diapers and throw up and you're in the trenches. And in the trenches is where you need to be. And it's going to be okay that you're in the trenches. And someday you're going to get out of those trenches. And then maybe you can 
move up the line and become the general. Who knows what ends up happening? But you got to get to the trenches. So just understand that's where you're at. And so I think sometimes when we're really hard on ourselves this time of year, we just got to remember we're freaking in the trenches. It's disgusting sometimes. It's overwhelming. It's loud. It's gross. But it matters. And, you know, and it really, really matters. And because you like you said that from your story in the beginning, it won't always be this way. You won't always have the gift of feeding 20 people three meals a day for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's also important when you're in the trenches that you know that you're there for a reason. You know, there's so many mentors out there that are feeling like they're failing, especially the new ones, especially right now because of this natural part, you know, natural time in the year where everybody feels like giving up. It's, it's a natural time, especially it's hitting us really hard right now because of that. But if you're a new mentor, don't give up. You are there for a reason. I have to feel like every single thing that, you know, every single place that we are, the reason why we're there, we are there for a reason. And even if every week there's something that you feel like you're failing at, you're there for someone. You are there to help someone to be an example for someone there's someone there that needs you you are enough right now because you're there and that's where god has put you and you just have to trust that and for me that gives me so much peace i mean talk about a lot on my plate i mean oh my gosh there's so much on my plate right now and i just have to pray every day. Okay, Father, I'm here for a reason. You have given me, we can call it a mission. You have, you can call it purpose, whatever. I am here for you. And if you have put me here, you will give me the resources I need. You will show me the path that I need to follow. And I'm not kidding. Mentoring, you do a lot on your knees. I mean, you're praying on, literally on your feet running around, you know, and as a mother, you're doing the same thing. I would literally, when my kids were little, I had four little boys in less than five years and I could never find shoes, matching, matching shoes, you know? And I would literally, it's like, okay, father, it's 110 degrees outside. I live, we lived in Arizona. They have to have shoes. Just help me find their shoes. And he would always provide my, my husband thought it was crazy, but it worked. <laughs> no, I'm with you, man. I, when my kids were younger, I felt like I stayed in a constant state of prayer. <laughs> just yeah. it's The only way that you can like survive. And I love that like to bring that up at the end of, of really submitting to that higher power. I think that it's something we've lost understanding of, you know, we've gone to like, oh, I can go to drugs to fix this, which I think there's a, obviously a place for a lot of medicine, or I can go to professionals, which I think there's obviously a huge place for professionals. I mean, we're, we're mentors, we're professionals. So <laughs> like, there's a place for us. But, but I think ultimately, like, there really does need to be that place of surrender to, to a higher power. And it's one of the things that I love about Lemmy is like, they don't necessarily say like, define what that higher power is or define that how it works in your life but they acknowledge that it exists and that it's working in your life to some extent I think that as a mentor 
understanding that is very liberating and believing it and, and holding on to it when there's days where she's like, oh, I just can't do another day. It's it's so huge and critical to, to getting to it. So in summation, I think the way that we as moms do it all is we don't, we don't do it all. We do what we can and we let God do the rest. Yep. That's it. Thanks, Dati. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.